Morning. morning. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for your many mercies upon us. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for giving us another week. Thank you for the fall. Thank you for the cool weather. Thank you for the changing of the seasons. I do pray that you would bless our congregation, bless the new babies and the unborn babies that we have. Keep them safe. Keep them healthy. Um, we pray especially for uh, Destiny's grandmother, that you would bless her and help her to be comforted as she's gone into hospice and bless Destiny, bless their family, help them in this time. And we thank you for all your mercies. Once again, please help me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Today we have the first sermon in a little series that's going to kind of weave in and out of our other series, our Roman series, the things that we're doing. And this is called American Gods. And what we're going to be doing is arming you to fight the gods that control our world today, that control America. And what I mean by that is the ideas that are out there, the ideas that are in our culture, the philosophies that undergird the way that we think, the stuff that's in our movies, the stuff that we breathe in every day. None of us, not the wisest, not the most godly among us, is above breathing in the air that is our culture. So we have to know where these ideas come from. We have to be able to deal with them. Colossians 2.8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy an empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And that's what we want to do. We want to arm ourselves so that no one can take us captive. And today, we're going to talk about a fun one, a big one, which is Marxism. Who here is excited to have a sermon about Marxism. Yay! Okay, maybe you're not excited because you don't want to hear some, you know, oh no, Church of the King is becoming political? What? I don't really care who you vote for in the upcoming thing. I guess I do care. But the point is not to talk about economic policies today or how we care for the poor or what we do with our border. The point is to talk about Marxism as a philosophy, as a religion, as something that competes with Christ. And it is big. It is big. It is one of the main ideas that's out there today that does compete with Christ. And I mean, it's, everybody knows what it is to be woke. Is everybody, anybody in here woke? Anybody? It's wokeism, right? We'll talk about how woke culture on the internet comes from Marxism. Uh, it's the assumption behind a lot of what's taught in our schools, including our Christian schools, a lot of what's certainly in our movies, in our media, in our social media, a lot of what our news feeds us, and a lot of the way that we think. We're not, you, you might not, I'm sure nobody probably in this room would say, yay, I'm a Marxist, but we are all actually influenced by this way of thinking. So what is Marxism. Well, let me start with a story. When I was about 10, the most terrible thing 
that ever happened to me happened, and I still remember it perfectly. I was out uh, going somewhere with my dad, me, and my brother Eric, and my brother John were in the car, and we were driving somewhere, and my dad stopped for gas, and he went in to pay the guy, and then he came out, and he had a delicious Hershey milk chocolate bar. And he had one delicious Hershey milk chocolate bar, which he proceeded to give to that dirty dog, my brother, Eric. And I think the idea was that Eric had been good that day, and me and John had been bad. So Eric got a delicious milk chocolate Hershey bar, and we did not get one. And that is the entire story. But that was, what, two and a half decades, almost three decades ago? I still remember it. It stuck with me. My brother John and me talk about this. We talk, oh, Eric, he always got away with everything. He, every, they always thought he was the good kid. He wasn't the good kid. He was the quiet kid. <laughs> parents, parents like the quiet kid, but, you know, the quiet kid is just plotting quietly. He's not actually the good kid, right? I still remember this. It's, it's like, it's stuck with me. I mean, who cares? I don't even like Hershey bars. I mean, that's like my least favorite. What a boring candy bar. But I still remember this. And why? Why? Well, because I am a Marxist, baby. <laughs> I'm a Marxist, and so are you. I experienced that day all four elements that I'm going to assert to you today comprise Marxism. And I came up with a very clever acronym, which is CARL, but spelled with a C, unfortunately, C-A-R-L. So C is for coveting. I coveted my brother's Hershey bar. If he, I didn't even like Hershey bars, but if he has one, then I deserve to have one, don't I? A is for assigning blame. It is my brother's fault. It's not my fault for being bad. It is my brother's fault for doing whatever he did. He he like tricked me and Eric somehow. R is rebelling against authority. I was not happy with my dad's authority. Now, looking back on it, I don't know whether I would do it. I don't know if my dad deserves to win father of the year for that particular thing. I don't know if that was a good thing to do. We're not here to talk about that today. But the point is, does my dad have a right to dispense chocolate bars the way that he wants to? As Sure. But what did I think that he did in that moment as a 10-year-old boy? No. An L, as, as Pastor Jake has taught us many times, the last in an acronym is always the, the reachy one. L is linking arms, linking arms with other people. Because after that day, I found other people who were mad at their dads for similar injustice. And we became friends. I tended to make friends with the people at school who felt the same way about their dads that I did. We wanted to be a brotherhood of, of victims. And those, this is what I'm asserting to you today, that's woke culture, that's Marxism. Coveting, assigning blame, rebelling against authority, and uh, finding belonging, linking arms. So that's Marxism. That's what's in all your Disney movies. That's what's, and I don't care if you watch Disney movies, that's not the point. But that's what's in all 
of everything that we eat today. That's what's behind a lot of the stuff that we're taught today. So let me prove it to you by taking us on a, a whirlwind tour of the history of Marxism. We're going to keep it very short and simple, but I want to talk about the history of Marxism and Karl Marx himself. And, and the more we sort of go through it, the more I think we'll see how it impacts us. And, you know, we'll end by talking about what we can do about it for us and as we talk to other people about the things that kind of come out of this. So let me ask kind of a semi-related question. This is for the, the kids. Shout out the answer. There was a guy who came up with a crazy radical idea that there was no God, but that the world was evolving, evolving from, oh, Danny wants to guess it. The world was evolving from a really basic state to a really complicated state. So from, from something simple to something better, whatever. Danny, Peter, Carl Darwin? Charles Darwin, wrong. Talk about Karl Marx. Context clues, dude. <laughs> Karl Marx. So Marxism and Darwinism are actually really, really linked. And they come out of each other. They came out of the same stew in the, the, the 19th, 20th, no, yeah, the 19th century. I always get that confused. So think about, everybody familiar with evolution, the theories of Charles Darwin? Everybody know what Charles Darwin believed? Uh, Darwin didn't believe in God, right? He did believe in conflict, survival of the fittest, that animals are fighting other animals. And through that, somehow, over time, we go from less complex animals to better, more complex. We evolve towards something better. He had faith that through this conflict, we would arrive at better animals. That was how he explained natural history, right? Which, which, by the way, just a, a little side note, really does take faith. Darwinists have faith, just like Christians do. Because a Christian, like as a Christian, we believe God made the animals, right? Like, there's not an animal there. Boom, now there's an animal. God made it. And that takes a certain amount of faith. Like, you don't see that every day. You read Genesis, you're like, oh, they, God just made the animals. That takes faith. But a Darwinist believes that the same process actually happens. We go from no animals to animals. But it takes a really, 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 really long time. And it happens by accident. There's no greater intelligence guiding it. Which I think also takes faith. Like they think if we make it go really slow, it's more believable somehow. Why is that more believable? Like if I walked into my kitchen and I saw on the counter a cake, let's say, my assumption would be, well, there's only one person in my house that knows how to bake. It's my wife. So I bet she is the greater intelligence that made this cake. But the Darwinist would say to me, hey, Nathan, actually your wife doesn't exist. The cake made itself. To which I would reply, that doesn't make any sense. My wife does exist, and cakes don't make themselves. To which the Darwinist would reply, Nathan, what if I told you the cake made itself 
by accident over a really, 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 really long time. Isn't that more believable? No. Point is, everybody believes in miracles. Pagans, for whatever reason, love slow, boring miracles. But Christians, we get like cool, fast miracles. So that's Darwinism. You get that one for free, but the reason I'm spending so much time on it is because it actually has a lot to do with Marxism. So Karl Marx was a poor, rebellious Jewish-German dude in the 19th century in Germany, and he was, in fact, influenced by Charles Darwin. And much like Charles Darwin, he didn't believe in God. He just believed in stuff, material stuff, what you can see. And just like Darwin said, animals are fighting each other. Animals keep fighting each other, and somehow we get to something better. Marx said, people are fighting each other. People are in perpetual conflict. Uh, just like Darwinists believe the fight between animals leads to the slow, boring miracle of the world, uh, Marx believed that the fight between these different groups of people would lead to the slow, boring miracle of utopia, the perfect society, a world with no countries, no war, no money, no classes, no private property. Everybody will have everything in common, which is communism, common. It's the word that means universal. Everyone will share everything, right? Now, I said people in Marxism are always fighting. Who are the people? Well, probably most of you know. Like, it's the haves and the have-nots, the owners and the workers, the oppressed and the oppressors, right? And what was Karl Marx's evidence for these two things? Number one, that you can explain all of history through these two groups fighting. And number two, that it will lead to utopia. Yay! Well, I've read the Communist Manifesto, and there's not a lot, actually. He just kind of says it. It's kind of like Darwinism, though. I think they're good analogies for each other. They're analogous. Because if you're a Darwinist, you have a lot of confirmation bias, right? You're like, well, there's an island where an iguana was a little smaller, and then the iguana got a little bigger. If you look over there, and if you look over here, people's skulls changed a little bit. If you, and what you're doing is you're finding the three things that speak to you, that support your point of view, but you're filtering out an entire world of things not changing, things not evolving. I mean, it's kind of like if I, get, if I get it in my head that my wife Meredith is mad at me, then I'm going to have confirmation bias. I'll walk into the room. She doesn't look up from her book. I'm like, oh, that's because she's mad at me. And I notice the three things that are like that. I filter out all the normal things. I mean, we've all done this in lots of places in our lives, right? Well, Marxism is just like that. If you look through history, obviously, you're going to find a lot of oppressors and oppressed. You're going to find a lot of haves and have-nots, and you're going to find them fighting. And if you decide that that's, that's what history is, then you're going to see that a lot. Does that mean that that's the explanation for all of history? Does that mean that that's the only and primary factor that drives history forward? Well, no. And does that mean that we are going inevitably towards a promised land, that if that keeps happening and if we make it happen even more, then eventually we'll get to some kind of a utopian society where everyone shares everything? No, I don't know why you'd think that. So this is American Gods. 
This is, we're talking about the, the religion that is Marxism. Who is the God? The God, I'd say Marxism has two gods. One is progress. Like just, we worship the idea of progress, of things getting better in some way that we can't explain. And I think that the God is actually me. Because I deserve to have what I want and someone out there is keeping it from me. Somebody isn't giving me what I want. And Karl Marx was gross about this because he wanted to do away with marriage. Like he thought, just for an example of the kind of gross things he thought, he thought he deserved all the women that he wanted, like anybody that he chose. And so he was like, man, all these institutions that are keeping me from having all the women, I don't like them. So the God is me. There's always a promised land in a religion, right? So the promised land for Marxism, again, is progress, utopia, right? A, a new world. Uh, the, the people that are hoarding all the money give it to everybody else, and then we all have everything. Uh, there's always a devil in a religion. Who's the devil? Well, the devil is the, the haves, the oppressors, the people with the money and the power, right? And there's always a ritual, a thing that you do whereby you beat the devil and you make it to the promised land. And for Marxists, for Karl Marx, it's interesting because it's actually changed a little bit. For Karl Marx himself, writing in the 19th century, it was violent revolution. What he said is we should throw off the oppressors through violence, through chaos, through murder, through genocide. Nothing is too big to do or too bad to do in order to achieve utopia. So let's murder, let's... And by and large, that's what Marxism did in the 20th century in the Eastern world, in China, in the USSR, in uh, North Korea, Korea, in a lot of places we could name where millions died. It was because they were just, the Marxists were just like, hey, let's throw off the oppressors. And, and they murdered everybody. And then some new guys got in power and it turned out that they were kind of oppressive too. And then they murdered every... I'm not going to go through the history of the USSR, but if you know anything about this, you know that the death toll of Marxism across the 20th century is huge. But that's actually not the main thing that impacts us today. Because the Western world has been a lot trickier for the Marxists who came after Marx to conquer. Um, we have, here in America and in Western Europe, in the, the West if you will. We have a strong Christian Protestant heritage. And that gives us things like private property that come out of that, small government, actual laws that people believe in, the rule of law. Like Most of all, we believe in God. We believe in God, by and large, not everybody, but by and large, the Western world has believed in the God of the Bible. And so they're not really ready to fall for any kind of fake atheist utopia and just throw off the oppressors and, you know, burn everything to the ground. We haven't been ready to do that. And the Marxists actually thought that we would. So Karl Marx died. The 20th century happened. War was brewing in Europe leading up to World War I. And the Marxists were all like, yes, this is going to be great. World War I is going to happen. And they're, all the poor peasants, like we know how history works, all the peasants are finally going to throw off their oppressors. They're going to burn everything to the ground. We'll get rid of kings. Like this is what's going to usher in our Marxist utopia. Yay. And then World War I happened and what happened? All the peasants were like, oh, you, you kings want us to go 
die for you in a horrible war? We'll do that. Cool. Okay. Bye. It turned out that the little people and the big people had a much different relationship and a much more loving and trusting relationship, by and large, than the Marxists expected. And so the Marxists are just like, what's wrong with you people? History is supposed to be built on you hating your rulers and wanting to throw them off, but you had a good opportunity and you didn't for some reason. And that, by the way, is the hilarious thing about this way of thinking, because it is, it does involve a lot of confirmation bias, right? Like, uh, uh, like a, 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 a really rabid feminist might look at my wife and say, she's in a church that believes that a wife should obey their husbands. She is attempting to obey Nathan, and yet she is happy. Now, how do we deal with this problem? And then you'd think it would be, ergo, therefore, you can't obey your husband and be happy, I guess. Like, maybe they would come to that conclusion, but that's never the conclusion they come to. They say, well, that's impossible. You can't actually obey your husband and be happy. Therefore, Meredith must be brainwashed. That's the only explanation. In fact, all women at Church of the King are brainwashed. This is exactly what the Marxists did, this kind of logic, when World War I didn't usher in communist revolution. Instead of thinking, well, you know what? Maybe life isn't explained by the haves and the have-nots hating each other. They, they thought, gee, I guess everybody's brainwashed. Huh. We need to detox these people. So what do we do? We need to get rid of all the things that they do believe in already, like capitalism and Western democracy, and most of all, Christianity. And we don't have time to talk much about this, but you can read about the Frankfurt School, which was a group of Marxist thinkers in Germany in the mid-20th century, and they very explicitly thought about how to tear down Western civilization. Like, we can't have violent revolution like we did over in Russia until we get people to give up on their actual God. And so how do we do that? They talked in these terms, and they said, we need to wage a war of ideas. We need to undermine people's faith in government, in education, in the church. Interestingly enough, they said the basic unit of uh, the world, of, of the Christian world, is the family, the good families. And so they talked about how they needed to have, get easy divorce, no-fault divorce, they needed easy access to abortion. They needed pornography. They needed homosexuality. They talked explicitly about these things because these are the things that undermine the family. You undermine the family. You undermine the society. None of this is a conspiracy theory. They just said that this is what they're going to do. And then they went and did it. And how did they do it? How did they undermine our faith in the government, our faith in the church, our faith in our family and our fathers? How did they do it? Well... They, this, is, this is the key to, the entire, to understanding the entire thing. They expanded the definition of Marxism. It's not just about economics anymore. It's not just about some people have all the wealth and power and some people don't. It's not haves versus not, have-nots. It's not owners versus workers. It's not uh, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. It's every institution you can think of. It's whites versus blacks. That's a power struggle. Men versus women. That's a power struggle. Homosexuals versus heterosexuals. That's a power struggle. Struggle. People who conquered a land, you know, colonials versus natives. That's a power struggle. These things are all power struggles. What we're going to do 
is teach everybody that they are the victim of somebody. Everybody is the victim of somebody. And they explicitly talked about how they were going to gain control of the universities, gain control of the arts, the media, teach the young people this. And that's cultural Marxism, and that plan was laid out explicitly less than 100 years ago. You could read about it. So, so that concludes our, our world-worn joyful history of Marxism. So let me ask you again, what is Marxism? I mean, the kind that's in our schools, in our movies, in our uh, churches, the kind that influences you, that influences me? Well, it is the idea that somehow or other, you are the victim of an oppressor. This is what it is to be woke, right? It's to wake up to what the oppressors are doing to you. Get woke, man. Like, the, understand that there's this power struggle, and if you, if you don't if you aren't wearing your correct glasses, you won't see it, right? It, Marxism, wokeism, whatever you want to call it, is the idea that somehow or other you are a victim of some oppressor, whether it's your dad or the patriarchy or the church or men or colonialists or whites or blacks or the police or racists or corporate America. Somebody out there has all the power and is using it to take advantage of you. What we really need to do is take away their power, take away their stuff, and give it to us, to you, to me. Now, now the problem with that is that, one of the problems with that is that power doesn't actually go away. There's always kind of this unstated assumption that if we just take the, just get rid of the power over there, everything will be good. But if you get rid of the king, then the parliament has more power. And if you get rid of the parliament, then the military has more power. And if you get rid of the military, then the police have more power. And if you get rid of the police, then the mob has more power. Power doesn't really go anywhere. It just kind of, you know, it's like water or something. It just flows to different locations. But this idea of we just need to get rid of the people, whoever it is that's oppressing you, we need to get rid of them. And there is somebody that's oppressing you, by the way. Why is this idea so powerful? Why is Marxism, this cultural Marxism, so powerful? Well, first, because like any lie, there's a lot of truth in it, actually. We do, I mean, A, we do suffer the consequences for other people's actions. So if my dad didn't work hard and I'm born into a poor family, I'm going to have less advantages than someone who was born into a rich family. That's just, it's not necessarily an evil thing, um, but that's the way the world works. And so it's easy to see inequality because inequality does exist. Um, B, it's easy for authorities to be oppressive. It's easy for kings and leaders and rulers and governors and mayors to be bad. They are often bad. They often are sinners and do things they shouldn't. You remember, maybe you remember in the book of uh, Samuel, the people, the Israelites look around and they're like, hey, everybody else has a king. We want a king. And what's one of the things that Samuel ends up saying to them? He says, okay, I'll give you a king, but... You might not like it. Like, he's going to tax you. He's going to take your best stuff. He's going to take, like, your daughters and your sons. Like, that's a relationship that has its problems, especially if the king's bad, and a lot of the Israelite kings were bad. C, reasons that this idea does have some truth to it, the rich are often corrupt. The Bible talks about this all the time. Uh, James 5.4, James is, like, yelling rebuking 
the rich people that he's writing to. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. No idea ever gets purchased if it doesn't have some truth to it. So there, we refer to the Marxists. That's the truth. The rich can be bad. Kings and rulers and leaders can be bad. Not everything works out to perfect equality in this world. Now, that's not the only reason that this idea is powerful, though. Why else is Marxism so powerful for you, for me? Well, let's go back to our handy-dandy acronym. We are all, so it's C-A-R-L, right? Coveting, assigning blame, rebelling against authority, linking arms with other people. Uh, we all covet. The, the t that's the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's this, thy neighbor's that. I never think about that one, personally. I don't know about you, but I just never think about that commandment. I, the other ones occur to me all the time. Oh, I was mad at that guy. That, Jesus says that means murdering. Oh, I was lustful. I steal. I think about that all the time, but very rarely do I think, gosh, Nathan, you were, you were coveting there. But it turns out I covet things all the time. I think I deserve things. I thought I deserved a candy bar, a candy bar that I didn't even like because my brother had a candy bar. We are all, we all have a lot of covetousness. We've all probably can think of examples of places maybe where we've coveted this week, like a place where we saw someone that had something and thought we should have it too. Or the even nastier thought, maybe neither one of us should have it. Maybe it would just be nice if they didn't have it. So C is for covet, A is for assigning blame. Well, we don't like to deal with our own sin. We wanna pile it on somebody else. We want, every one of us here wants to be able to say like, my sin isn't my fault, it's my dad's fault, it's my mom's fault, it's the government's fault, it's my teacher's fault. R is for rebelling authority. I don't have to talk much about that one. I mean, nobody likes authority. Uh, L is for linking arms. Our Marxism, these kinds of ideas appeal to our need to belong, our need to have an identity, our need to have a family. Obviously, everyone here, I think, knows that our identity, our family, should be in Christ and should be in his church. But it's so easy to have your identity in like a shared sort of victimization. I mean, I've watched this phenomenon my whole life. If anyone's a people watcher, they'll know this, or like a, a pastor or somebody, will, anyone who, whose job it is to observe large groups of people will have observed this phenomenon. In a room of 10 people, in a room of 20 people, in a room of 50 people, in a room of 100 people, in a room of 1,000 people. It doesn't matter how big or how small the room. The two women who think they got a raw deal, who think that, like, who want to complain about their husbands, they'll find each other. The two guys who hate their boss, they'll find each other. People with bitterness, people with anger at the world, people who are mad about something, they just have a mad magnetic pull. It's amazing. It's amazing. You can watch a group of 300 people, and if you know the individuals well enough, you'll be like, well, that person never met that person. They had nothing to do with each other. There's no reason, uh, you know, that person doesn't drink. That person does. There's no reason they both should have ended up at the bar over there at the wedding. But somehow, somehow they find each other. People love to complain together. They love to be angry together. They love to be to share their victimization together. It, it's what makes people feel validated. So that's the history of Marxism. 
That's what it is and what it does at its heart level. Now, the million-dollar question, how does it impact us in this room? Well, the fact is we have all... I, don't, I really don't want to dunk on Disney movies. I like a lot of the Disney classics. But we have all grown up being preached this stuff. I mean, I, you know, the first animated Disney classic that came out maybe when I was young was Little Mermaid. And that is just the story of, you know... Betcha on land, they understand, but they don't reprimand their daughters. Bright young women, sick of swimming, ready to stand. That's the story of Ariel just wants to follow her heart. She just wants to marry who she wants to marry, some human dude from a different species. But her dad won't let her, the patriarchy, the the royal system, whatever, the systems of power are oppressing her. And if she just says, eh, I don't buy any of that stuff. Everything will magically work out. If anybody's read the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, nothing magically works out. Everything magically is terrible. And she turns into seafoam at the end or something. Uh, It's totally depressing. I like the Disney one better. But the point is, we've been preached at and told that we are special, that whoever is standing in the way of whatever desire we have is bad, since we were little kids, all of us, and and we learn in our schools and um, in our churches, this this type of thinking, I don't want to spend too much time hammering this point home, but I just want to say this this type of thinking has infiltrated all of us one way or another. And everybody in this room, myself included, you know, you think you're the victim of somebody. Could be your parents, could be your spouse, could be President Trump or President Biden or your school or your job or your genetic makeup or... Everybody thinks there's somebody out there that owes them something or somebody that has something that really they should have. I don't know what it is for each one of us, but this is the air we breathe. This is the water we swim in. We're all this way. And our, our, our children are especially, you know, if you observe children, they're especially tempted to be this way. If, if, you're, if you're just letting them slide into neutral, this is the neutral that they slide into. So, so how do we fight it? Well, let's go through our awesome acronym again. So C is for covet. We must be cultivating gratitude to God instead of covetousness. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and on says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. When every movie is telling you to be ungrateful, when every movie is telling you, you are Ariel and you are being oppressed, You have to be countering that message constantly with your kids, just teaching them to be grateful, teaching them to be happy, teaching them to be thankful for the things that God gave them and not jealous of the things that God gave other people or always thinking that they need more, you know? A is for assigning blame. We must own and and teach our kids to own our sins, own our responsibility, take or own our failures, take responsibility for our lives, Man, I've done, I've done a, a good few, many years of youth group work, and now I have the privilege of doing it again, which is awesome. Uh, one of the typical sins, not for every teenager, but for many of them, is you'll just hear them complaining about how they got a raw deal from their teacher, from their parent, from, usually it's teachers, right? Like this, you know, I would have done well in this class. I was ready to do well in this class, but this teacher just doesn't understand anything about Gian. You just, that's like, you hear it all the time, 
all the time. And it's not that there aren't bad teachers. It's not that there aren't sinful teachers. It's, aren't that there, it's not that there aren't teachers that should be fired. But, man, the happy kids that tend to go on and do well in life are the ones who kind of have been taught one way or another to have a default position of, I take responsibility. It's probably my fault, actually, that I got a bad grade. It's probably not the other person's fault. And sometimes you'll, you'll go into the homes of the other kind of kid, and you'll see the parent actively indoctrinating them like, man, you got a C? Well, you know, Mrs. So-and-so just doesn't like you. And I just always kind of, I mean, I've seen that thing, kind of thing a lot, and I always kind of cringe. I mean, it's easy to be mad at the teachers, like, but it's just, it's just so easy to teach our kids it's not their fault, it's the system's fault, the person out there, the authority figure's fault. So C, covet, A, assigning blame, R, rebelling against authority. I hope we're all teaching our kids to love authority, again, by not complaining about it all the time, by having our default position be, well, probably the authority figure was right. Maybe in this particular case, he or she wasn't. But, you know, we'll start with a basic submission, attitude of submission and trust for authority. I think one way we can do that is by, I mean, this is a big topic that we've already preached many sermons on. We will preach many sermons again, so I won't say much, but let's be good authorities, you know. Let's have, our, let's have our kids' hearts. Let's not be exasperating. Let's not be, let's, let's listen. Let's, uh, you know, every dad with a teenager to this week uh, to make a goal to spend five minutes just listening, not giving any advice or anything, just uh, how was your day, and then you're actually interested. Uh, could do a lot. We don't have time to talk a lot about that. L is for linking arms. We need to be the church to people. If we're not the church to people, if we're not the church to each other, then people will find a church. They will find relationships and community and shared cause and shared devils and shared gods somewhere. And it needs to be in the church of Jesus Christ. But that's not where everybody finds it. And so you can do your part by being the church, by loving people, loving people here, doing whatever you can to get into real relationships with people, to provide heartfelt community. Because if you don't, they will, people will find that in other places. So, love the church. I understand that everybody's busy and has things in their lives, but again, let your default position be, we go to things, we want to try to make it to this or that thing that the church is coming, you know, if it's Sunday morning, we're not going to do the thing where we sleep in, you know, we slept in or we had a bad night or somebody's grumpy, so we're just taking the day off. No, we, we place a high value on the church and what it has to offer. I think this is a busy season for a lot of us, and I sympathize with that. It's a busy season for me. But I also think it's been my observation that there are ways in which, for maybe for Church of the King, like the honeymoon period is done. So there were those of us that were like, I'm going to go to everything. And then you kind of get out of that habit after a while. And I don't think you have to go to everything. I don't go to everything. But just love the church and want to be there and want to have your kids there. It's important. It's important. It's a thing to walk into the casino and put a lot of chips on that because it'll pay off. It'll pay off. So finally, when you are talking to someone else, whether it is your children or whether 
it's you're, you're preaching to your own heart or, or whether uh, you're talking to a kid at, at work or something. If you're, if you're talking about this stuff, whether it's explicit, like we're, we're arguing about Marxism, yay, I'm so glad I'm in this conversation, or you're talking about something like, wow, have you noticed how all the Disney movies are about oppressive authority figures? Um, go for the heart with people. You can show them the ridiculousness of their opinions. You can, uh, I hope I've given you a few handles for how to think about this stuff historically, philosophically, that kind of thing. But uh, don't go for the head, go for the heart. Say, yeah, sure, things are unequal, people and systems are unjust sometimes, but the reason for that is sin. The answer for that is Jesus. That has to be our message to people. It can't just be, well, Karl Marx actually was a hypocrite. That stuff's good, it's helpful, but sin, Jesus. I, you know, I'm a victim of a bad dad, so let's get rid of my dad. I'm, a vic I'm kind of a little overweight. I'm a victim of body shaming, so let's make me thin. Let's give me a good bod. I'm a, I'm a victim of unequal distribution of wealth, so let's give me more money. Let's pay off my student debt. Uh, I'm a victim of unequal access to education, so let's give me a, a PhD. Uh, I'm a victim of, I'm, a, I'm personally a victim of reverse sex discrimination, so let's make me a girl. Oh, now I'm a girl, so I'm a victim of regular sex discrimination. <laughs> so let's make sure girls have all the power, and let's spell girl with a, a U, girl. And let's do that for some reason. And let's make sure that Church of the King uh, is actually called Church of the King and Queen and has a girl with a U pastor. So I, as a, now a girl with a U, am, am being pastored by someone who will be in my corner and understand my struggles. Uh, let's reorganize and let's redistribute everything until I have my fair share and Alex has his fair share and Matthew has his fair share and now I just said a bunch of men, which is internal sexism. So uh, Ayame has her fair share and uh, Megan has her fair share. Uh, let's make sure everything is equal. There's no power. Everybody has everything. You know what? We're still going to be sinners. I'm still going to be a sinner. I'm still going to need Jesus Christ in my life. The problem isn't out there. The problem isn't here. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that we would be people who love each other, who take responsibility for ourselves and for each other, who do not covet what other people's people have. Pray that you would um, help our culture to repent of these things and help us to find godly, humble ways to stand against them. Thank you for your mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen.